0: Furthermore, the equation E is equal to mc squared.
1: And uh, here's the discovery. I'm going
2: to make him laugh
1: again. Welcome to another Cheeky Scientist Radio podcast. I am Isaiah Henkel with Cheeky Scientist. We have a great show for you today. This is the radio show for PhDs who want to get hired into their first or next job in industry and who want to thrive in business. Thank you for joining us. Here we go. Welcome to another Cheeky Scientist Radio show. Isaiah Henkel here with Cheeky Scientist. We have a great show lined up with you for you today. We have a special external guest, Vanessa Van Edwards. She'll be on today to talk about how to be likable, not weird, especially during interviews, high pressure situations. She'll talk about how to speed read people's faces, uh, which I'm very, very excited to hear about. I'm going to give her some facial expressions and we'll see if she can read them. Maybe, maybe we'll do that. We also have a great show me the data section. We have the most rigorous study I've ever seen on handshakes and talk, talking about interview handshakes, networking handshakes, vigor, eye contact. Everything you wanna know about handshakes is coming up, but we have a lot of other data we're gonna be talking about too. I wanted to start today's radio show by talking about interviewing in general. So hiring continues to be way up for PhDs. In some areas, the unemployment's down to 2%. If you haven't been hired yet, that's okay. It's probably because you're invisible online. But if you have entered the job, your job search, maybe you're getting interviews, maybe you're negotiating salary contracts, maybe you're going to site visits, you think things go well, but then you get a salary contract that is much lower than you expected, a salary offer, or you don't get one at all. What happens? We're gonna talk today about some things that you can do to come off as more likable, more capable, more confident, uh, and, and really to showcase the skills that employers are looking for. One thing that we see a lot of PhDs making mistakes with, especially on interviews, are not showing their level of commitment for the position at hand. Now, of course, when you're negotiating, you wanna show that you have other options. That's good. That's not the type of commitment I'm talking about. I'm talking about, especially during the initial evaluation stages, maybe even before during a phone screen, a video interview, are you committed to that position? Or are you doing the typical academic thing where you're not really being committed to anything, right? So, you know, a lot lot of us as PhDs in academia, we we learn to not commit to any sort of data, commit to any sort of option because there's unlimited options. Right. We think we're Socrates and that, you know, the, the, the older we get, the less we know. And so we like to keep our options open. We use passive language like it could be it might be said or sure, I'd be open to that, this kind of stuff. Right. That's all academic language. They're not looking for that in an interview. They want you to show them that you are 100 percent committed to that position. You'll do whatever it takes to get into that position. And then once once you're hired, you'll do whatever it takes to be successful in that position. When you're interviewing, that's what they're looking for. Doesn't matter how skilled you are technically, what else you have going on. If you can't show that you're committed to the position, they're not going to give you a salary offer or a good salary offer. Okay, you have to show that commitment. So how do you do that? They're going to test you, so be ready for it. That's the first step, right? They might ask you questions like, "Would you be open for other positions?" Okay, "Would you be open uh, to coming on here and moving into a different position right away?" Uh, "Are you exploring other job options?" "Are you, you know, are you?" okay to work here or, or virtually, right? They'll ask you these open-ended questions where you can't really tell what they want. Your instinct as a PhD and academic is to say, sure, I'd be open to other positions. You think that's what they want to hear, that you're open to, to whatever. Um, you might say, oh, you know, I wouldn't mind working virtually. Uh, I don't need to work at headquarters. They don't want to hear that. They want to hear that you want to work there with their team, their people in this position, the position you applied to. So what you can say is, you know, I, I would never close off any doors completely but I'm I'm committed to this position right now because I think I'm a perfect fit for it for X, Y, Z reasons. You want to keep bringing it back to, I'm dedicated to this position, but if they want to elevate it at the end and say, well, we're going to actually make a senior position, we're going to slightly tweak the job title after they've showed you that they really want you for the position, that's fine. But show your commitment first. So many PhDs come off as flaky and like they're not sure what they want. And because you're a PhD, you spent most of your time in academia, they're very concerned. Employers are very concerned that you're going to, want to go back to academia, or you're not really sure about industry, you're just kind of exploring. There's PhDs, academics, scientists, right, engineers, we tend to explore, we do our research, we weigh our options. This kind of analysis paralysis stuff is exactly what they don't want to see, okay, so show that level of commitment. At the same time, and I'm not going to talk as long about this, but at the same time, show flexibility, and show a level of relaxation, comfort with who you are, and talking about how you can help them achieve their goals. Right. So in flexibility, this comes to problem solving. They're going to test you with behavioral questions, et cetera, to see if you're flexible or if you're too literal. Too many PhDs are very literal. They'll give you a, a use case or they'll, they'll give you an example of a problem and, and you take things too literally. You have to be flexible. Talk about being able to explore different options to solve the problem. Not explore different options in terms of the career path you want. You want that career path, the one you're interviewing for. But show flexibility in terms of your problem solving. And then show, you know, uh, that you're able to be relaxed. If you're stressing them out or showing a high level of stress or anxiety during the interview, they're not going to want to hire you. The the job's probably stressful enough to them. Don't show that you're stressed. You know, show them the side of you that can be relaxed, that can talk about problems, work through them. Ask them questions. This is a, a, where where confidence comes from, uh, or showing confidence in large part. So these are just some things that we're seeing. We've seen them in our association with other PhDs, not getting job offers or getting low job offers. Commitment, flexibility, relaxation. Start working on that. So if you're just joining us, welcome to another Cheeky Scientist Radio Show. Great to see you on Kareen and Lou, Laura, Mario. Great to see you on Melinda, Prashant, Serene, Sorayas, Svetlana, Toby, Valentina, Wadim all Cheeky Scientist associates joining us in the Zoom inbox. We have people watching us here on the, on the membership uh, private group as well. And then we have many of you watching on the live stream, whether it's on Facebook or YouTube, good to see you on. We have a great show lined up for you today. We're talking about how to be likable, not weird, to get hired in industry. So you have these high pressure situations, networking, video calls, phone screens, site visits, of course. How can you come off as charismatic? How can you read the other person faster? We have a very special guest, Vanessa Van Edwards, who we will be bringing on, uh, talking about her new book, how she speed reads people's faces. After Vanessa comes on, we're going to be bringing on uh, Gabriel Villar as well, who's an R and D scientist in the industry, talking about his transition, what he does on the job, what his career trajectory is like. We have a lot to cover today. We'll be starting with the Show Me the Data section here very soon, and. I want to give all of you a chance to get our special show up bonus today. This is a bonus you can't get anywhere else, but right now live on the radio show. If you go to cheekyscientist.com slash radio dash bonus dash July dash 10th and 10th for those of you listening by audio is one zero TH five ways your body language is making you look awkward during an interview. Put your name and email on this page. Before the end of the radio show, you will get this bonus for free. CheekyScientist.com slash radio bonus dash July 10th. And again, 10th is 10th. If you haven't been to the Cheeky Scientist blog page, go to cheekyscientist.com slash blog. You have a lot of new blog articles coming out. The number one trending blog right now is This Resume Format Gets PhDs Hired Five Steps to Writing a Functional Resume. As an academic, if you've been in academia your whole life and all you have is academic job titles and you're not using a functional resume, hello, you're invisible, you need to change it. All right, so make sure you go to cheekyscientist.com blog, check out that article. Um, We have other articles too. Uh, One that just got released is what the flow of your PhD level interview process will look like. So if you don't understand the interview process, you've had some curveballs. maybe you are on your third video interview and you're like, are they ever gonna invite me out for a site visit? Check out this article, it'll help you understand. Now, for those of you who don't know, Cheeky Scientist has a portfolio of career programs that will help you get into a job in industry. But we also have a portfolio of technical programs that will help you with your technical training in industry or while you're still in academia. One of our flagship programs in this technical portfolio is the Expert Cytometry Mastery Class. It's a training program the world's most elite training program because we have the most elite teachers uh, for flow cytometry. So if you're doing flow cytometry, this is a great program for you. Your university, your uh, company will reimburse you for this. You get continuing education credits for the program. And what I'm showing you here is a webinar that's free tomorrow, advanced flow cytometry data analysis and statistics for publication. So if you go to experts com slash data dash analysis dash webinar, You can sign up for that free webinar tomorrow. All right, so what I'm going to do now is we're going to jump to the show me the data section. I'm going to stop sharing my screen just for a second to bring Jeanette on with us. Jeanette's going to go through the show me the data section. We have a lot of great data to cover. We start with the show me the data section before our guests come on because we like to have our hands in the data as PhDs. We want to talk about it before we get to the guests. And we have some great figures and data to talk through with you today. Let me make sure we can get Jeanette on here. I might have to make her co-host and then we're going to jump in. There we go.
3: Hi Jeanette, how are you? Good, how are you? I'm
1: great. Are you ready to talk about the level of vigor and duration of handshakes?
3: (laughs) Yes, all the nuances of body language, yeah.
1: All right, if you haven't said hello to Jeanette before or now, please say hello to her in the chat box or wherever you're watching us. And then on my screen, what we're looking at here are some figures, some data, and we're going to go through and and, and the show me the, the data section. We try to make it as relevant as possible to today's show, and to today's uh, special external guests who are who are coming on with us. So the first figure, if you're listening by audio, is called "competence and likability as keys to success." Uh, the the article is on, I think it's Viget, V-I-G-E-T dot com slash articles. And we have a Y-axis here where we're looking at competence from weak to strong. And then we have a X-axis where we're looking at likability from weak to strong. And so this is just giving you a kind of an understanding and a fun way of how likability and competence are interconnected and why these two things really matter to employers. So you want to walk us through um these kind of spheres that are showing up in the upper right hand corner what is that the second quadrant third quadrant third quadrant of the of the uh figure
3: yeah yeah so we'll start by just explaining that there's different quadrants in this right and that depending on like if you are uh weakly competent and weakly likable right they're calling you the incompetent jerk right it's just kind of like like you said it's like a fun way to look at this but if you're incompetent but people like you then you're a likable fool Right, And so we both realized that those aren't places you want to sit. No PhDs are the fool. Right? right? You are all very competent at what you're doing. But what's important is to get yourself into that likable category where they've shown on this graph that the further you can get into that third quad- quadrant, which is where you are highly competent and highly likable, the more successful you will be. And I know that as PhDs, sometimes this is really hard to get your head head around, because competency should win, right? If you're yeah. the best at the job, you should yeah. get promoted. You should be leading, but that's not how the real world works. It matters if people enjoy being around you and find you likable. It, it matters, and that you need both to reach that like high level of success.
1: Yeah. And, and so I'll break this down again for those by audio. Right. So the, if you remember, the first quadrant is the one that's, you know, you're basically you're weak, competent, weak. You're not likable either. You're the incompetent jerk. Look, these people aren't even getting hired in the first place. Right? They're not, <laughs> you know, not going to get a callback. But you have a lot of people. And I would say, you know, they're like the 50 percent, whether you're in quadrant two or quadrant four. Right. So if you're very competent, but not likable, you're the competent jerk is what they're calling it. And if you are very likable, but not competent, you're lovable fool. We've all worked with some lovable fools. That's fine. Usually, the PhDs, you know, this is not a concern for you, but the competent jerk, like Jeanette said, is. And we think I have the technical skills. I don't have time for this fluffy, get along with people, likability, make eye contact, whatever. We all know PhDs like this. They just have not put any effort into being likable, knowingly or unknowingly. Um, the problem is, is that employers no longer are no longer keeping these people on because. You know, that might work for you if you're like a company of one. It might work for you if you're a really, really small company, maybe, where they just need somebody to be able to execute. But as the company gets bigger, like the, the system in its is, entirety is more important than any one individual. So they don't want to bring in, like we say, we heard these three people from a hiring manager, uh, these three qualities from a hiring manager at Genetech, that they try to avoid. Arrogance, awkwardness, defensiveness, right? all of that stuff would kind of fall into that competent jerk category. You're highly competent, um, but you're also arrogant or, you know, maybe you're just awkward and, and defensive. So you got to avoid that. And they call this the, the third quadrant, the rock star. like Jeanette said, that's really where you come off as likable and competent. And it doesn't take very much effort. It does take effort. And so if you can just get past that threshold of not putting in any effort whatsoever, <laughs> you're going to be much better in terms of getting hired. Just worry, just start working on that likability. Next figures from the Harvard Business Review title is, I'm the boss, why should I care if you like me? Very intriguing title for us PhDs. And again, it's a Harvard Business Review. So there's a little sub, uh, subheader here that says why, leader, why leaders need to ask for advice. Leaders who ask for feedback are better liked and more effective than those who don't. According to data from 360 assessments of the leadership effectiveness of over 50,000 executives. So I'll set this up for you, Jeanette, why access? is the leader's willingness to ask for and act on feedback. And then on the x-axis is leader's likability. So we have you know, very uh, least willing to most willing in terms of feedback uh, on the y-axis. And then we have different percentiles on the likability axis, And then we have like a linear line. What, what does this mean, Jeanette?
3: Yeah, so they're sort of looking at, like that first part you read said that likable leaders are more effective, right? Mm-hmm. Based on this giant survey. And so this is one way that leaders are seen as likable or not likable. What is one thing that you can do, like a strategy to make yourself as a leader seem more likable? And what they're showing is that when a leader was least willing um, Mm. to ask for feedback, they were the least likable, right? And so the more willing a leader was to ask for and act on feedback, the more likable they were. Which, according to that sentence above, the more effective they will be at their jobs.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, and I think a lot of you have seen this. Like, think about your academic advisor, a PI, or a thesis committee member, or a boss you've had. You know, when they ask for your feedback, it just it all, almost automatically creates rapport, right? And it gives you a chance to express yourself. And and you know, if you see them respond to that feedback, it can be very validating too. And it kind of it helps you approach each other as equals to get more done and so you're looking at this like well why do I care you know if I'm not the boss because you were all in leadership positions believe it or not of somebody and if you go into industry especially you're very likely going to have people working underneath you uh, because you're going to go in in a senior role uh, or you should be as a PhD you have to know what you can do like everybody says be likable like it's some sort of x factor you can't control we don't buy that because we're PhDs you got to be able to break it down into data science Here's something you can control. Can you ask for feedback? Yes, can you respond to it? It doesn't matter. All kinds of people have great ideas. People have different perspectives. They're gonna help you, no matter who they are, see something you haven't seen before. Next figure, first impressions, cultural assimilation and hireability in job interviews, examining body language and facial expressions impact on employers' perceptions of applicants. So this is a study on Concordia uh, and I love these studies because no matter how many times I see them, they just go, you know, right out of my head. I'm just like, oh yeah, nonverbal stuff, really important, whatever. It just seems really hard to control that. Like I've gotten better over the years at identifying certain body language characteristics. Like if I see somebody put their hands in their pockets, I know it means they wanna like leave or in a hurry. This is one that I remember. But uh, it's really hard to think about the nonverbal stuff you're doing at the time. And so hopefully Vanessa will help us with this. But this first figure, it just shows resume, attire, and nonverbals on the x axis, scale of zero to eight. On the y, nonverbals, way higher. What does this mean? Yeah, you know?
3: yeah. so for this um, study, it's quite a small n of people, but the eight is the number of like, executives that they asked, and it was people who were directly involved in making hiring decisions, right? Mm. And you can see that um, almost all of them rated nonverbals as the most important. They care so much more about what you're conveying with your body and your face than what your resume and clothes say about you.
1: Yeah, and and it takes effort to do this. I I think it takes a lot, much, like I just said, a lot more effort to hone and practice your nonverbals. I mean, think about how much effort sometimes it takes just to look at somebody and nod and actively listen. Like, that's a big part of the nonverbals versus writing your resume and attire. Like, so you have to be, you know, Engaged, especially during things like interviews, network. You got to be on. It can be exhausting, but the more you do it, the easier it becomes, and the less energy it takes. Uh, another figure here: nonverbal attributes employers look for overall. So on the x-axis, we have eye count, contact, looking relaxed, display confidence, handshake, smiling, good posture, <coughs> preparation. What was number one, Jeanette, and why do you think?
3: Yeah, so the number one on here is eye contact, right? And I think you kind of hit on that before. Why? that is the most important because it shows that you are paying attention and that you are engaged and it conveys a level of confidence if you meet someone's eyes right and so these all of these like tiny things like the person is learning about you if you can maintain eye contact with them for an appropriate amount of time right you want to stare at them like a like (laughs) yeah, yeah right exactly that's not good either um but looking you know at them and then away and then at them is like it's just normal behavior. Mm. Um, but if you don't make that eye contact, it can have a really negative impact on how they view you.
1: And this is pretty easy to do. I mean, just make eye contact while you're talking and they're making eye contact with you. And then when they break eye contact, break yours for a second too. And then you can bring it back. You know, mm-hmm. Just uh, realize that you, most people don't show enough eye contact. Right? There's always you know, a couple of outliers that'll just stare. <laughs> but usually you're not showing enough eye contact. Uh, Next figure, nonverbal is noticed in the first 10 seconds by the employer. So we have smiling, eye contact, handshake, lack of nerves, confidence. So the difference here is in the first 10 seconds, what do they notice the most in the first first 10 seconds?
3: Yeah, on here it's smile, right? So that goes right back to that likability idea, right? If you walk into that room and they meet you for the very first time and you're frowning, Right. Like that is not, that's not what they want to see. Right. So they're noticing right away. And like we're just built to look right at each other's faces and decide how is this person feeling right now? And, um, yeah, so they're noticing your smile and then your eye contact, which we just talked about how important that is.
1: Exactly. And some of you are thinking like, okay, yeah, smiling and eye contact is important. Thanks for the breakthroughs, cheeky scientists, but (laughs) we have to come back to this. We've never shown the data and studies on this. You know, you looking at the quantitative, uh, you know, these kind of metrics is important because it just reinforces it in your brain. Like, yes, I really need to do this. I can never take, you know, this interview off or this meeting off without making eye contact and smiling. You have to be on. And because I've always wanted to know what's the real data of a handshake. We actually have it here. The, I think the most exhaustive study ever done on handshakes, a great table, that I can barely even read here, but Jeanette's gonna help us. Uh, The title is Exploring the Handshake in Employment Interviews. It's a site by Sarah, uh, study, great study. It's from a a study by uh, Stuart, Dustin, Burick and Darnold. And what we're looking at here is a table of means, standard deviations and correlations. And we have a variable, everything from conscientiousness to openness and then down to handshakes and then the interviewer's assessment. This is our last figure here and then we're gonna bring on our guest uh, Vanessa van Edwards, uh, but let 's just go through this real quick. Jeanette, what does the data show us about handshakes?
3: Yeah, so this is really cool. They went and asked they, they set up a like mock interview for people, right, yeah. and then they had them evaluate the handshake and whether or not that person was going to be hired, right like if they were a hireable person, someone that you would want to work on your team, and they had them evaluate, like you said all these different things of the handshake, things like strength, figure, grip whether or not you had eye contact while you were shaking the person's hands and then this correlation table if you look at number 15 which is the interview assessment which is the long one that's red if you're watching my video and then over it's correlated um, positively and significantly with all of these factors of your handshake right so the better you are at your overall handshake appropriate strength good figure, right? Like good grip, a nice duration, making eye contact. The better you are at those things, the more likely you were to be a hireable candidate. And they actually in this study had two separate people make that decision. Mm. So they had someone like shake that person's hand and they evaluated the handshake. And it was another person who decided if they were hireable or not. So they weren't influenced to rate the handshake right as good or bad, like in their brains. Yeah. But anyway, it's pretty cool to see Like these tiny details of your handshake broken down.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And we're showing this because again, you know, it's very easy to think you could just overlook this simple stuff. We're not blowing your mind by telling you a handshake is important, but you can break anything down, right? Anything about likability or charisma, you can break it down into data like this, and then you can act on this data. So strength, vigor, grip, duration, eye contact, uh, exhaustively has been shown to positively correlate with... um, being hired, so thank you very much, Jeanette. It's always great to have Jeanette on for the thank show me the data section. Please tell Jeanette thank you in the chat box if you haven't done so already. We're going to move on to the next section of the radio show. This is our leadership leadership section where we're bringing on a very special external guest. And uh, in, in today's show, it's Vanessa Van Edwards. I'm showing her on the screen here. Uh, she is lead investigator at Science of the People. She is the best-selling author of Captivate: The Science of Succeeding with people, Vanessa shares tangible skills to improve interpersonal communication and leadership, including her insights on how people work. She's developed a science-based framework for understanding different personalities to improve uh, your EQ and to help communicate with colleagues, clients, and customers. She works with entrepreneurs, growing businesses, and trillion-dollar companies, and has been featured on CNN, BBC, CBS, Fast Company, Inc., Entrepreneur Magazine, USA Today, The Today Show, and many more. She speaks at, at, She's spoken at Google, Facebook, Comcast, Microsoft, and Penguin Random House. Millions visit her website, scienceofthepeople.com, which we'll show shortly, um, every month. And they get help turning soft skills into actionable, masterable frameworks that can be applied daily. So very excited to have on Vanessa. We're gonna bring her on just in just a minute. This is her website. Please go to it, scienceofthepeople.com. Check it out, incredible website. She speaks frequently. Very excited to have Vanessa on. Um, I've been seeing Vanessa's videos since I wanna say like 2013. She has a great book out called Captivate, I love the cover here. I'm showing it on Amazon. We're gonna put this link in the chat boxes, wherever you're watching this and wherever you're watching the live stream. And we will uh, send it in the post-show notes too. So Captivate the Science of Succeeding with People. Great reviews. And it's not like there's three or four great sample size of reviews here too, 445. Uh, Check it out again, I I love the cover here. She's gonna talk about uh, reading people's faces with us when we bring her on. She has a great course that I, I highly recommend for, for all of you, uh, especially as PhDs, getting training on dealing with people and these things that people call, you know, charisma, X-factor, et cetera. You can't be trained in this. It's just a skill. Uh, if you go to scienceofthepeople.com courses people-school, you can get on the wait list for uh, their program. So without further ado, I'm going to bring Vanessa on here. She should be able to start her radio. Yes, hello. Uh-huh start her video, let's see if that'll come on. Hi, Vanessa, how are you? Hello. <laughs> great to see you, nice uh, microphone and setup. I need to get one of those backgrounds, that's great.
2: <laughs> it's just a silly Chinese screen which I can take everywhere with me, so it's super easy. <laughs> Brilliant,
1: yeah, well thanks for being on. Uh, really, really excited to, to hear more about what you do and your book, etc. cetera. Um, I always like to start with-
2: watching videos since 2013. Yeah. I, can- I was like, oh my gosh, he's seen the bad stuff too. <laughs>
1: I remember. No, it was first when we first started the the business. I remember watching your videos, and you had this one very early where you taught you broke down other people in the industry like Tim Ferriss, et cetera, about how what they did with their arm movement. Yeah, way back
2: yeah. then. So, oh my gosh, that I was a baby on YouTube
1: back then, a baby. It's, it's great to see your 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 success. So congratulations. <laughs> um, I wanted to talk first, just to get people to understand like what the problem is, right? So what are really the, the through your work, you know, in, in behavioral psychology, everything that you do, um, what are the problems you see people have in terms of coming off as likable or charismatic or the things that they do, verbal, nonverbal?
2: Yeah, it's really interesting because I am able to see the problems in two different spaces. First is the, we get so many emails and messages from students, probably thousands a week. And the other, the the secret way I get to see people's problems is the Google search results that we get, which is really interesting because the messages people send to me are a little different than the search results, but they're kind of the same umbrellas, right? Because the search results, I feel like our search results are so private, right? If I were to say, you know, I'm going to publish your last, you know, three weeks of search results, people will be like, no, yeah. it's, it's really our deepest, darkest our worries. And so um, a big one is this idea of being overlooked, forgotten, and interrupted. So we find that a lot of people who come to us at first, they don't realize that maybe likability or people skills or charisma is the problem. They actually are coming because they're being interrupted a lot at work. Mm. People forget having met them before. People forget having, um, forget having heard their name. And the big one is they are being overlooked for promotions, uh, clients are meeting with them, but not booking with them. They're having all these sales meetings but they can't actually close the sale. So they're not able to get all these opportunities and they're constantly being passed up. Mm. Those, those problems, like they keep me up at night, right? Like when I'm thinking about what video can I create? What content can I create? What can I research? It's how can I make sure That people who are brilliant, who are extremely talented in their field, are actually recognized for their talent. Get the sale, get the deal, or are actually seen for their ideas. So those are the big problems that I see over and over again.
1: I love that because it makes it much more practical. And and I think all of us here have experienced those feelings of uh, not being noticed, being interrupted. Where do you start then? So let's say you identify that. They're being overlooked. They're not being able to... uh, close something, have the impact they want to have. Where do you start? Like you do a lot of training courses, et cetera. What's that? So
2: in our research, we found that one of the biggest problems is that most people learn people skills from extroverts. So if you look at all the resources out there on charisma or extroversion, you know, you know, the, the quintessential, how to win friends and influence people, Dale Carnegie's book, amazing. They were, most of those people are natural people, people. Right, They're already good people, they're naturally magnetic, they're very charismatic, they're extroverts. So they give advice, very well-meaning advice, like just be yourself, Yeah. (laughs) be more authentic. And if you're a recovering awkward person like me, I'm absolutely a recovering awkward person. I am not a natural people person. I don't know if anyone in chat is also a recovering awkward person, but I am not a natural extrovert. I am not naturally charismatic at all. So I would read these books and felt like, yes, I love these ideas, but how do I use this? Yeah. So what I found is that the worst thing we can do is pretend to be an extrovert. And that is the biggest problem. For people who are getting interrupted or overlooked, they feel like they have to fake it till they make it. They mm. have to fake being an extrovert to be heard. That's actually the worst thing to do. And the reason for this is the study is very, studies are very clear. Our emotions are contagious. So if mm. you're faking it till you make it, all you're putting out there is faking it, faking it, faking it. In mm-hmm. fact, there was one study, it's one of my favorite studies, it's done by Dr. Barbara Wild, and she looked. She took people who were smiling. And the first set of pictures were people who were genuinely smiling. They actually were thinking about a happy moment. And the, the second picture were people who were just fake smiling, they were told to smile. Now, the pictures looked the same. If you were to say, which is the real smile, which is the fake smile, participants could not tell which was the real and fake smile. However, when they looked at the real smile, they themselves felt happier. When mm. they looked at the fake smile, they felt nothing. Wow. When we talk about being forgotten, when we talk about being overlooked, when we're like, why, why, why are people not remembering me? It's often because we are faking it till we make it. Literally, physically, we don't catch that emotion. We mm. can't catch that fake. We don't, we don't feel that, it doesn't grip. So what I would say is the very first thing to do is self-diagnose. Are you really an extrovert? What's your real brand of charisma?
1: Hmm. So let's say you're an introvert, like most of the people here, or oh, you have introvert tendencies, and you really don't care about being likable at all. Like yeah. smiling is painful for you, being around people is painful, and you just wanna like get stuff done. Like that's yeah. just your goal. And you don't even really buy into any of the stuff that you're talking about. What? Wh- how would you start with them?
2: Okay, so first I would say If you've ever felt like extrovert and introvert don't quite fit you, if you're like, I just don't feel like either of those things, Mm. and if you're like, I don't know about likeability, I don't even know if it's important to me, you probably are an ambivert. So ambivert, I've heard this term and I was like, huh? Like that is me. Amber or omnivert
1: or ambivert? I'll
2: I'll, I'll type it in ambivert. Ambivert. Ambivert, it's my favorite phrase. I feel like this is the age of the ambivert. Um, so anyway, I, I found this term in like an obscure research journal and I started writing about it and it, people were like, yes, that's me. So I wrote a whole kind of quiz. If you think you're an ambivert, you're welcome to take the free quiz if you'd like. But here's how you know if you're an ambivert. Ambiverts can dial up into extroversion when they need to, and they can dial down into introversion when they want to recharge.
3: Mm.
2: Ambiverts have this amazing skill where they're very socially flexible, this is good and bad. Just like with physical strength, you know, it's great mm. to be flexible because it means you can do lots of things, but it also means you can overextend yourself, mm. get people pleaser, mm. uh, you have a hard time saying no or setting boundaries. So what's really important here is to figure out when do you have to dial up and how can you do it authentically? Mm. And how do you recharge as an introvert so that you're actually recharging in a way that genuinely fuels you? Makes sense.
1: Like those- it does. Yeah. So let's put it in a practical example for this audience. So let's say you're going into an interview, a site visit, which is like eight hour full day, six to 10 interviews. How can you tell them to dial, like what triggers, what uh, strategies do you have for dialing it up and making sure you're not crashing at, you know, the middle of the day?
2: Love it. Okay, so let's let's look at that very specific example. So first of all, you want to figure out um, uh, what kind of settings or situations make you thrive. Like, don't don't you don't have to expend a lot of social energy for them. So, for example, for me, I find that. Present, presenting um, in, in front of a small group, it's actually not that much energy for me. Um, mm-hmm. I know my slides really well. I love my content. My content gives me energy, right? Like mm-hmm. I, I see this study by Barbara Wilde and I'm like, oh my gosh, this is such a good one. So for me, I like to start my big days with that because I know that it's actually giving me energy. What takes me a lot of energy, and this is what you'd have to figure out for yourself, um, one-on-ones. Mm. I'm one-on-one with a VIP. Like if I have a, a CEO client or I'm sitting with a, a, the head of sales, it's a lot, right? Because we are like intensely working out. I have no idea what questions they're going to throw at me. I have no idea what we're going to have to work through. Mm. By the end of that two-hour session, I am absolutely drained. Mm. So I try to save those usually for right after lunch mm. <laughs> or right after some sort of coffee or snack period. If I start the day with that, I'm in trouble. Like there's no way that I can get up the energy by the end of the, day, I have the presentation. So I would go through each and every activity. I would actually mm-hmm. take your, take a notebook. I would break down each social activity that you are doing throughout your day, down to communal lunch. Like for example, I also find communal lunch is exhausting. Like the big mm-hmm. table, I always work out ahead of time that I'm not gonna do a working lunch. I give everyone like an assignment or a challenge and I will eat in the bathroom if I have to, just cause sometimes that is my only quiet time but maybe for some people that's really social energy like giving. So make a list of every social activity you're gonna do from lunch to coffee breaks and then you should give it a plus or a minus. Does it add to your energy? Do you leave feeling like recharge and good or does it subtract from your energy? Do you leave feeling like, how am I gonna do the next thing? Yeah. And you wanna space them out. It's about making sure that you have plus, minus, plus, minus, plus, minus. Mm. And if you can, especially if you're an introvert, what are your carve out times in the middle of the day? Is it lunch? Is it a 30 minute lunch break? Um, is it an activity that you can give everyone else to go do a site tour or um, you know, filling out a worksheet mm. or viewing paperwork that gives you just 10 minutes to deep breathe, take a breath and recharge. So that's a very quick way of doing exercise. That's how I do it with my students.
1: No, I love that. And I think for those of you that are going to these site visits, always ask for the agenda beforehand because then you can do that plus minus stuff and figure out where your breaks are because it, it can really be valuable. A five minute recharge sometimes is enough.
2: And, and, and by the way, like if you can't get the agenda ahead of time, of course, and if you can't, you could always pull the organizer aside in the beginning and say, hey, is there gonna be a good time for me to sneak out and review for my presentation later this afternoon? Yes. Meeting organizers are your key. Like the, whoever's planning the day, they know it all, right? They might say, oh, you know, lunch is going to be delivered about half an hour early. You can always sneak out and grab it. Like mm-hmm. they know all of it. They know everything.
1: Yeah. And it helps build rapport. So don't be afraid to, to ask. Great, great point. I want to talk about your book and about reading people's faces because your book is amazing. Who came up with the cover of that? I, I love it because obviously it plays on the being able to read people's faces.
2: So that's funny. For anyone who's interested in writing a book or, or doing a book, I actually wrote the entire history of that cover. They We actually did research insights on it. We did six mock-ups of the cover, sent them out and had them graded and rated. And um, I think it's, uh, if you search my website for how to pick the perfect book cover, I can send the, the link. We will show you exactly how we picked it because covers matter more than you think, especially in the publishing industry. Woo all kinds of secret stuff. But basically um, I was told that front facing faces do really well on covers and um, I didn't want to have a fake smile. So I had to argue with them about that.
1: Yeah. Real smile. And yeah, it's great. And I love, I think for us, like on the scientific angle, you have like things pointing to it and what what they need, like a figure. Um, So I want to talk about it practically though. Let's say you're going to an interview, another high stakes situation. I was talking a little bit earlier, like I've read the body language stuff, the face stuff. I know the working knowledge, but it's really hard for me to call it up when I need it. Yeah. So number one, what do you do to trigger yourself to actually call it up when you need it? Is it just practice? And number number two, how do you speed read faces? This is something yeah. I got to know.
2: Yeah. You ask a really, really good question because it's usually I get asked, how do you read faces? And that's only part of it, right? The second part is how do you practically remember all the different facial expressions? So there are seven universal facial expressions. They're called micro expressions. They're actually 10,000 different facial expressions, but there are seven universal expressions of emotion, they were discovered by Dr. Paul Ekman. And they're great, If you can memorize those seven, do it. I have all seven in the book, that's great. The second piece is what you mentioned is more important and that's how do you practically use them. So here's how I practically use them. Before I go into a meeting, especially if I think it's gonna be an emotionally charged meeting, a meeting with a client, a negotiation, um, a pitch, an interview, right? Very emotionally charged ones. I think to myself, What emotion do I want to make sure I spot and address? Mm. So for example, let's say um, in an interview, I'm usually very attuned to fear. I really want to see, because in an interview, everyone says they're good with everything, right? Yeah, I can do that. I'm confident with that. I've had experience with that. So the emotion that I'm actually really looking for is fear. Mm. So that way I have one goal I'm really looking for, one emotion that I really think is gonna tell me the most. Now, fear is a very easy emotion. So if you want to try this with me, I want you to raise your eyebrows as far up your forehead as they can go and then widen your eyes. Yep, so whites your eyeshadow and go oh. All right. That's the fear micro expression.
1: <laughs> That's a micro expression? That's a micro expression.
2: Yep. Okay, and okay. by the way, if you do it for too long, you will begin to feel anxious. If, if you actually hold that expression, you begin to feel anxious. The telltale sign of fear is the vertical lines on the forehead, right? So you can see them, those vertical lines. That's how you know you got fear and the whites of the eyes. Wow. So that's, I don't need to remember everything about the face. All I'm looking for is the whites of the eyes with those lines. If I see the whites of the eyes with those lines, I know I got fear. That's all I'm looking for. So I, I tuck it away in the back of my head. It's kind of like a where's Waldo. Like I've experienced everything, but if I see that, I know I'm going to make a special note for it. So then we're talking, we're chatting in the interview It comes up and I say, you know, so how do you feel about um, working virtually? You know, this is a virtual office. Are you going to be okay with that? Oh yeah. You know? um, Yeah. Yeah. I'm fine with it. Bingo. I just spotted something that will become a problem later.
1: Mm.
2: I don't address it right now that might be an issue that she feels isolated, she feels alone with her work, she doesn't get a lot done virtually. And mm. so because of that fear, I would then ask three or four follow-up questions that I wouldn't have normally asked. I would say, so have you worked virtually before? Oh, you know, a little bit. Yes. Yeah, so um, was it full-time? Was it a couple days a week? How was how your productivity? I know it's so hard to get stuff done. Yeah, you know what, I, I, have, so much, I have so much trouble getting things done at home. Mm that's something that I want to know because this job will never not be virtual. Yeah. And I, and I, it's a very independent job. I'm not going to be writing. So it let allows you to kind of open up a door that you probably would have missed before.
1: No, that's great. So, uh, for all of you listening, try not to show the whites of your eyes on the interview. Um, <laughs> But on the reverse too, like if you're looking at an interviewer, you might want to key in on like disgust or frustration or I forget what the other, confusion, right? Yeah. So, so if,
2: I was the inter- if I was being interviewed, the, I wouldn't be looking for fear on them. I would actually probably be looking for contempt. So mm. contempt is the simplest of the micro expressions. It's a one-sided mouth raise. Mm. Either side. Now, I would just sit in that for a second. So uh, everyone watching, if you can just sit in contempt. <laughs> you kind of begin to feel like better than, you know, like kind of like smug, like snarky, scornful, Yeah. A little snarky. It's a very, very dangerous expression. It's most often, we have a huge body language quiz on our website where we've had 25,000 people take this quiz. Wow. Contempt is the one that people most often get wrong. Most people think it's boredom or apathy. So on, a, on an interviewer, I would be looking for contempt because most people think it's boredom, but actually you're seeing a little bit of better than, a little bit of scorn, a little bit of superiority, and that's when I would make sure, if I saw it on my interview face, I would make sure I go right back into rapport building, get them back, figure out what what is the issue here that's making them feel like, no, I'm better than that. Mm. Hugely important in an interview or negotiation.
1: That's great, and easy to spot, once you know you're looking for it. Yeah, yeah. uh, I wanna talk to you about one more thing. First impressions, obviously. we when you're looking for a job or you're making a big change in your career, your life overall, you know, to uh, find your way into a different network. It's very hard for people. You go through that power networking phase, daunting, lots of rejection. Mm -hmm. What, what can you do to help? What would you, what would be like your X point strategy for better first impressions?
2: Okay, so first impressions are so important, but there's good news and bad news here. So I like to think of first impressions kind of like a lever. So mm. remember your old physics days? Um, if you have a good first impression, it makes the entire interaction easier. Mm. So instead of having to worry about a 30 minute interview or a 30, an hour long networking event with a, with a, with a n- new group of people, you're actually really only have to worry about the first few seconds. And that's a lot easier, right? Like it's a lot easier to just worry about the first few seconds instead of mastering and making it perfect for the entire 30 minutes. Mm. So first, for the first impression, there's uh, three different levels that you kind of want to pass here. So the very first one is that you're friend, not foe. So just from a human, human behavior perspective, when we first see someone, we're trying to gauge friend or foe very, very quickly. It's a very quick decision we make. The way that we look, we're looking for cues of an authentic smile, right? So anyone who's an authentic smile, if I saw a caveman across the, the, the Savannah. If they were smiling at me, I would know it was okay. In fact, the smile is the micro expression you can see from the farthest away. That's why we show the whites of our teeth. You can see the lights from very, very far away. So a smile. Hands also, you'll notice the moment that my video turned on, I waved. Mm. I do that with every video, every interview, every room. I will always acknowledge someone with, oh, hey, good to see you, and then follow up with the handshake. I know you were talking about handshakes. That's the perfect one, two, one, two, three punch. Smile, some kind of hand, visible hand, that's because we like to see that someone's not carrying a weapon. Um, in my TED talk, I, I talk about why hands are so important, um, and it's because we're not carrying a weapon. And the very next thing is that oxytocin burst, that handshake. The moment someone shakes our hands, we get a nice burst of that chemical that makes us feel so good. That's the one, two, three punch,
3: if you can do it.
1: Excellent. Well, thank you very much, Vanessa. Uh, please thank Vanessa in the chat box. Lots of resources. We put as many as we could in the chat box for you. We'll put, it, put them in the show notes too. Um, I want to go to your, your book page and your course site. So thank do, you, you, yeah. do you know when the next course is opening up for enrollment?
2: Yes, they're opening in the next three weeks. So um, if you get on the wait list today or tomorrow, you will be able to get that launch, the launch that's coming up. So yeah, we're very, I'm very excited. It's going to be a good class. Excellent.
1: And uh, one more time, Captivate the Science of Succeeding with People. Everybody get this book. Trust me, it's amazing. There's that picture, right? Front facing, chin down, all the stuff that she'll talk about in the book and why she did it. Thank you, Vanessa, very much. Great to have you on. Thank you so much,
2: everyone. Bye.
1: Are you a PhD student or postdoc who wants to get an industry job? Are you tired of being paid one third or less of what you are worth in academia? but you don't know where to start, maybe you've been uploading resumes over and over again, but you haven't heard anything back from an employer, go to phdsgethired.com and get our free materials on how to get hired in industry. All you have to do is go to phdsgethired.com, put in your name and email address, and we will send you our resume guide, our networking scripts, and our other free trainings to help you start your job search now. Again, just go to phdsgethired.com. All right, so if you're just... Joining us now, uh, we're gonna be moving forward to a uh, special interview with somebody who has transitioned successfully using their PhD into an R&D track. Um, we're very excited to bring on this guest. Um, I'm gonna do a short bio of them here. Let me make sure the camera's working, there we go. So we're gonna, we're gonna move forward now to bringing on Gabriel Villar. I'm Pretty sure I'm saying his last name right. Very excited to bring on Gabriel, he is a PhD and his LinkedIn page is here, I'll show that next. Uh, He is an engaging entrepreneurial and innovative mechanistic scientist with over 13 years experience in investigating the molecular and physiological basis of complex traits and behaviors across both traditional and non-traditional model systems, including honeybees. His work is highly interdisciplinary, spanning the fields of genetics, sensory biology, chemistry, ecology, conservation, animal behavior, lots of other things. Uh, He transitioned into his first industry role this year, where he works as an R&D scientist at Beckton Dickinson, an industry leader in health tech. Uh, He will make his second industry transition very soon into corporate biological systems in a director capacity. Very excited to have on Gabriel with us. This is his LinkedIn profile. He's done a great job with it. Make sure you connect with him on LinkedIn. We'll put that in the chat box for you as well. And now I'm gonna bring on Gabriel. You should be able to start your video now. There we go. Hi, Gabriel, how are you? Up oh, you're on mute. Let me see if I can take you off mute. There we go, try. try again.
3: Oh, can you hear me now?
1: I can, good to see you. Great, hi Isaiah, thanks for having me on. Yeah, thanks for making time to be here. I appreciate it. How are things going? How's, uh, how's life since the transition?
0: Life has been so much better. Life has been great. I mean, you can see the smile on my face. Uh, My chin is down. I'm forward facing.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Chin down, forward facing. Exactly. So can you tell us a little bit about, I always like to talk to people that have, you know, gone into R&D, essentially research in industry, coming from a research background. What are some of the differences that you noticed right away after transitioning, the differences in doing research in industry versus academia?
0: Uh, Great question. I mean, my, I was I was actually quite shocked uh, at first when I first transitioned. I mean, there was almost no uh, no overlap in what I was experiencing. I mean, hmm. um, collaboration is huge in yes. so as academics, we're we are used to a different style of collaboration where it's okay we're collaborating now, but really it's you are going into your corner and you're doing a part of a study independently by yourself and then eventually you'll share an authorship with somebody else. And that's, that's what the kind of uh, collaboration you see in uh, academia and industry, it's quite different. Uh, You are many times interdependent on other people to drive projects forward. So Mm. really what you bring to the table and what others bring to the table need to synergize. uh, And and that's how you end up getting, Mm. uh, moving projects forward and, and getting anywhere industry. So it's it's a much different version uh, and a much more intense version of collaboration. So if, if you like working with people and you like that type of environment, uh, um, industry is a good place to, to experience that.
1: And do you find that the, uh, the milestones and the targets and the goals are much more clearly laid out for you in industry?
0: My experience thus far, that has been the case. Um, the milestones are a lot of the time, very tangible, realistic. There's a timeline associated with them. There's a lot of um, continue. There's a continuous process of sort of gauging your your progress along the way in terms of achieving that uh, timeline. And um, it's definitely a, a collaborative effort, and you need a lot of communication, a lot of back and forth to to continue to to facilitate progress. Um, yeah. And that's something that I like a lot because there's in academia, a lot of the time you have this long period of sort of silence between different uh, members of a project, um, supervisor, other colleagues, you know, whatever, and uh, you can get lost in the weeds sometimes, right? So uh, it's, it's a very, it's very different process. Hmm. I appreciate it. And I like it a lot, and I, it's definitely a place where I feel really comfortable.
1: No, thank you for that. Yeah, I think, you know, the two things that you just said, the, the collaboration uh, with others towards like these shared goals and actually knowing what the shared goals are seems to be the biggest differences. And uh, it can be very exciting because like you, you feel respected, like you it matter and you're getting feedback right away. And we just learned how important that feedback is. Uh, I want to talk a little bit about, I want to come back to what you do on a day-to-day basis, but I want to talk about how you got into this role. So what made you to decide, like why go after an RD position? <clears throat> what was your reason why?
0: So I had, you know, I had finished my PhD. I had done uh, a postdoc and was wrapping up a postdoc. Um, I started to evaluate really what I liked about what I was doing, um, what I wanted to continue doing, and what I wanted to change um, about that. And so, an R and D scientist hit a lot of buttons. It, it would allow me to sort of remain tied to the this. You know, you introduced, you gave me this sort of nice introduction. Appreciate that uh, about you know, sort of my my ident- my professional identity as a mechanistic scientist, and so I, I really like staying close to the science. So that's something that I wanted in my next role, um, but not necessarily at the bench, right? And so, um, in industry, a lot of the time, what they try to do, especially with PhD levels. Uh, researchers is they don't want you, you know, in there doing a PCR or whatever in the lab. They want you sort of thinking bigger and working outside of the lab, driving those processes inside but higher up, you know, looking down at those processes and sort of dry, being more of a driver, being more uh, someone that's conceiving studies and stuff like that instead of on the ground, boots on the grounds, you're at the bench, you're, you're pipetting. So that's that was a step up that I wanted to take too. A little bit of a separation from the wet lab work, a little bit more sort of leadership and ownership about how we were going to go about you know, doing a certain study or whatever, but still tied to the basic science. And so the R&D science uh, is a good balance there.
1: Yeah, less, you know, less of doing what uh, uh, robotics can do now, more of do, using your mind and, and being strategic, which is great. So. What did the actual transition process look like? Did you have a phone screen, a video interview, site visits? Can you walk us through? Um, I mean, how did you get your initial referral? What, what happened?
0: Right. So this was uh, actually, this was a cold application, so no, no referral, um, um, just good old-fashioned searching, producing a really strong application package, um, and then putting that forward. So I was looking for R&D positions. I had developed my application package. Um, you shared my link it LinkedIn, but you know I define the package to be your, your, your online presence, your resume and, and cover letter, and also your interpersonal skill, like how do you do on a phone screen? How do you do on an uh, person-to-person interview, right? Um, how do you handle yourself? So all that so I was working on all that. After I left my postdoc, I really focused on strengthening that package and then when it came time to you know start interviewing I felt very prepared. So for for Becton Dickinson the process was uh, either one or two initial phone screens and then I got brought in for an on-site visit. I met uh, the team, I was interviewed by all members of my team um, and one external member of the team as well. Um, Of course including my hiring manager, my current supervisor and uh, I gave a presentation, as well. Um, and so it was a fairly brief um, brief uh, process um, yeah. in terms of the, the uh, interview.
1: And what did they ask to see in the presentation?
0: They wanted to see um, a lot of my competencies, not necessarily technical. I mean, they wanted me to be able to demonstrate that I had technical Competency, but they wanted to see basically how I functioned as an innovator, as a leader, um, how I dealt with complex problems and issues, and, and process them. Um, you know what? How you know what was what mechanisms do I employ to drive projects forward? Um, how do I deal with uh, failure? Right? Mm. How do I deal with failure and and uh, and also, of course, interpersonal skills. I mean, I can't stress enough uh, how, um, how much that is a part of my day-to-day job right now. Just working with people, learning to collaborate, influencing people that I don't have direct authority over, all that is critically important in the day-to-day now. So I think all those things were tested um, during that interview process.
1: And those the, the cross the, those cross functional relationships. What what do you think is the you know what are the one or two things that looking back at yourself before you got this job, let's say you know six months ago, whatever it was, that you wish you could tell yourself, or what would you tell other people who are just starting to go down this path, the transitioning, they want to get into R and
0: D. Um, some advice. Okay, um, I would say. Some advice I would give is, you know, figure out what you want professionally and personally in your life. Hmm. Figure that out. Figure out what you're willing to sacrifice. Sometimes that means sacrificing some things, right? Depending on what what you come up with at the end. And then you must commit. You must commit fully to engaging in the transition process. So I taught, you know, I I do a lot of networking. I meet a lot of academics and cheekies and People that are still in academia, they they they're wanting to, they're unhappy, they're wanting to transition, or they want more out of their life than just you know seventy-hour work weeks <laughs> uh, with not a lot to show for it. And right. but they're not fully committed to making the jump and to really focusing on the transition. They they mm. they want to keep one leg in academia yes. and then sort of pepper in a little bit of an attempt at trying to transition. Those people are not going to transition.
1: Mm.
0: You're just not, you need to fully commit. So that's one piece of advice I would give uh, is just figure out what you want, figure out what you're willing to sacrifice and then enact a strategy and a commitment to go after that. Um, Two is I I, I would develop a reasonable yardstick to measure your successes and your failures. Academia has this sort of warped yardstick to measure success. Publications and grants, and if you don't having, if you don't, if you're not, you know, producing either of those two things, then you're not really being successful, right? Mm. But that doesn't, that currency doesn't translate into the world outside of academia. So if you really want to be in industry, or if you don't want, if you want another job that's just not in academia, you need to adopt a, an appropriate yardstick to measure your success and failures. That way you can continue to improve on your weaknesses and and continuously evaluate your progress Hmm. getting to where you want to go. Um, And then I would also recommend um, that people embrace the experience of failure in your job search. So the most value that I have found as a job candidate, someone that's on the market or has been previously on the market, um, for for a job in industry is actually going out there getting on those phone screens making mistakes right losing those opportunities getting invited to um, to on site visits and not nailing it right yeah. Th- those are the most valuable experiences that I have had and they have strengthened my uh, skills as an interviewer as a negotiator as just a you know a Uh, a professional in industry, right? Mm. Professional. Well said. So I think those are three sort of key advice points that I would give for for people that are looking to transition.
1: That's incredible. Gabriel, thank you so much for your insights and for adding so much value back to the the program. It's great to see you and your success and we're excited for this new role you have coming up too. Thank you.
0: Yeah, updates coming up on that. Thanks, Isaiah.
1: See you in the group. Gabriel, thank you very much. Please thank Gabriel in the chat box if you haven't already. Those insights, those three insights at the end were fantastic. I think that's, that's an article we have to write using those points, Gabriel. Uh, so again, please thank Gabriel in the chat box. We are going to move forward with the rest of the show now. Um, for all of you watching the live stream, this takes us to the end of the public streaming portion of the show. We're moving to, to the members only portion now. Uh, for those of you that are not a Cheeky Scientist Associate, yet, if you're not a member yet, you can go to PhDsgethired.com. That's the easiest way to uh, remember where to go. PhDsgethired.com. There's an informational page there. Enter your name and email. We'll send you all of our materials to help you in your transition, um, including our resume template, all of our eBooks on negotiating and informational interviews and so on. PhDsgethired.com. Thank you all for watching and we'll see you on our next radio. This takes us to the end of another Cheeky Scientist radio show podcast. Thank you for joining us. If you want to learn more about transitioning into your first or next job in industry, just go to phdsgethired.com. Go to phdsgethired.com. We will send you all of our free training materials that will help you start your job search now or help you take it to the next level in business. As always, remember your value as a PhD and start thinking and acting like a successful industry professional. (laughs) I'm <laughs>